following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. I've been getting phone calls, obviously Ebola is on people's minds in Texas, if you didn't notice, especially in our local Dallas, our lovely sister community. So a lot of people have been calling me with questions, so I'm still in the midst of researching the topic. A lot of people from Dallas have been calling me, so I have the questions, but I don't have all the answers yet. So we're going to discuss Ebola in the context, actually, of a fascinating story that happened in 1848 in Vilna. So we'll start with that, but there's a lot of interesting questions. So we'll just, if you go to the bottom, okay, we'll, get, we'll get to the Ebola part. So we'll start with this, this actually, this story that took place in 1848, which I think is very relevant to Ebola, and it happens to be on the Yom Kippur story, so I figured it's a good way to, to uh, it's a good context to, to discuss the topic. But um, basically there was in, I don't know how long this uh, epidemic took place, but there was a cholera epidemic. I don't know much about cholera, um, I don't, don't want to know much about it. It doesn't sound like a very pleasant disease and it was really decimating this area in Eastern Europe at the time, many, including affecting obviously many in the Jewish community. So there was this famous rabbi, his name was Rabbi Israel Salanter, who was actually the founder of the Musser movement, which is known as the ethical movement in Judaism um, at the time. He was born in 1810. Uh, I don't know, I remember when he died. I looked it up. So he died, um, I think he was in his 80s, so here, this time he was around, he was born in 1810, so he was 38 when this occurred, I guess, the story. But anyway, he was, uh, he had a yeshiva in Vilna at the time. His, what he's famous for, again, he was the uh, founder of the Musser movement. Musser, Musser means, literally means ethics, but it was more in the, in the sense of he felt like in the, historically in Judaism, the focus was on ritual and on, and on, um, studying Talmud and the yeshivas and the higher places of learning, there would be more, more at this Talmud study as opposed to the focus on ethics. So he opened the yeshiva where he trained his students to basically focus on ethics. And ethics doesn't only mean in the ethics. There is business, eth business ethics in the sense of being honest in your business, etc. Um, but it also means refinement of char character. And that was his key focus. That they would literally spend hours a day refining, working on an attribute. to take an attribute of themselves and and try to refine their their character traits, and from and it was very controversial at the time because again the focus wasn't intellectualism, which always was in Judaism. It was more again on working on one's character, which was unheard of up until that time. Solely focusing on character as opposed to studying Talmud and halacha, etc. Is that um, more common now? Oh, still um, uncommon. It's still yeah. I mean, every yeshiva now, because due to, to his credit, they have what's called a Musr seder. I mean, there is 15 minutes a day where officially you study ethics, but it's more of like optional and it's it's not a key focus. So it's a, it's a problem. It's still a problem, um, meaning that it's not it's not really focused. Again, rightfully or wrongfully so. So it was a big debate then. At the time, he was he was, but he was a world famous rabbi. Again, he's known for his ethical teachings. Many of his he wrote many books on ethics. Just to give you an example of who he was, because there's one famous story I always say over, which is. He had never, you know, he had never left Vilna. He never, Vilna was more or less very, there was over 130 synagogues when I researched the story. And there was 130 synagogues in Vilna. At the wow. Time. So he had never seen someone, uh, you know, who wasn't observant of violent Shabbat. So he writes in one of his letters, he has a book of letters, so 
writes that he first time he went as all good rabbis eventually we have to go fundraising um, as part of the job at some point so he went to Paris first time in his life to fundraise um, I don't know how old he was and he writes his first time in his life he saw someone smoking on Shabbat so he writes in the letter he's writing someone he writes he fainted dead away he'd never seen someone smoking on Shabbat he fainted on the spot and then he writes the next Shabbos, he saw someone smoking, so he, you know, he got some stomach cramps. But he went by the third Shabbos, you know, he, he was lighting him up, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so the point, his point of the letter was, you know, you can get desensitized, any, you know. Yeah. You become desensitized to anything eventually. But that's just to show you what a person is. Anyway, but uh, this is well, another one other. The other point is he learned to get out more. <laughs> I don't know if he went back to Paris. It depends how much money he made. Not that out more. <laughs> yeah. um, but he, but the other one, other funny story. I'll just tell you quickly is, so they say, you know, what part of the yeshiva was that uh, would use different psychological tactics to to refine their characters. So one of them, which probably doesn't agree with contemporary psychology, is they would study. They would have like mantras. So they would. One of them, famous line was in the yeshiva. They would study Musser and, and they would just repeat the same line many times. Mm-hmm. So one of the lines was in Yiddish, they say, Chbina Garnish. It means I'm a nothing. You'd say, repeat to yourself, I'm a nothing, I'm a nothing. So the story, uh, it's a real story joke. The guy, this new guy comes to join the yeshiva one day and he's there for his entrance exam. He sits down, you know, everyone's sitting in the, in the study hall going, I'm a nothing, I'm a nothing. So he sits down and also starts going, I'm a nothing. So the guy, you know, the other guy, one guy goes, yeah. Look, he's here the first day, and look, he thinks he's, he already thinks he's a nothing. <laughs> he's a so it's an interesting um, uh, focus within Judaism. Again, it doesn't really exist today in that sense. I mean, Wolby's grandfather actually is one of the, was one of the great Musser uh, teachers of the generation. So he was, he was in, in, went along with the school of thought. In any case, so this, the story goes, so in 1848, like I said, cholera was rampant within Vilna at the time, and the question, Yom Kippur was coming, the question was what to do um, with the fast of Yom Kippur. So the story goes, and there I found five different versions of the story. Only one of them was the first, was an eyewitness account from his son, from Rabbi Salanter's son. Everyone else, um, there's different stories. As a matter of fact, the story was used um, by the Enlightenment movement, which is the precursor to the Reform movement at the time, um, as a you know sort of a, a mocking of Kippur in the sense of you know oh you really don't have to fast. You see people uh, didn't fast. This is a picture I found on the internet actually of three. This is Bialik, the famous uh, author, also lived uh, lived in Vilna originally, and this guy I mean is Frischmann. Um, wrote a book, wrote a, sh- wrote a book of short stories. Within that book of short stories, it was called um, The Three Who Ate. Okay, and, and referring, he doesn't mention Rabbi Salanter's name, but he basically refers to three rabbis who ate on Yom Kippur, who got up in front of their synagogue, and they made Kiddush. So the story goes that Rabbi Swell Salanter this year got up that year on Yom Kippur in front of the whole synagogue, and he made Kiddush for the synagogue. He took a piece of cake, and he made a bracha on it, and he said, everyone needs to eat this Yom Kippur. And obviously, people were aghast, and so much so, there was an argument. It says the head of the bed in the Vilna at the time ruled, got up immediately after we saw Salanta and, and said, he's wrong, we're not, we're not, we shouldn't eat, no one's allowed to eat. There was a big argument at the time, it was actually, um, we saw Salanta, because of this controversy, ended up leaving Vilna, moving out of Vilna. It was such a big uh, 
controversial thing that happened, allowing basically getting up the chief rabbi of the town, getting up and allowing everyone to eat on Yom Kippur. The question was exactly what the argument was, was who was correct. Um, so that, again, there's no real documentation of what happened. But normally, as we know, and we spoke about this many times within Judaism, life overrides everything. So there's a verse in the Torah which says, that that means the Torah, that God says, you shall live by my commandments. That means if any commandment endangers human life, you're obligated to violate that commandment. Except the big three, which we're not going to get into, that's three exceptions to that rule, but which is murder, idolatry, and adultery, basically. But for everything else, you violate the Torah and do not sacrifice your life. Uh, Judaism is not a religion of, of uh, sacrif- sacrificing life, of jihad, so to speak. We don't uh, blow ourselves up for God. We don't, don't do those things. God says, listen, the Torah is about life. And if in any which way the Torah will endanger your life, you need to violate the Torah. So in Kippur, can we say this, say this over? If your physician tells you for Yom Kippur that you need to break your fast mm-hmm. and you need to have a double bacon and cheese on Yom Kippur and drive to get it, then not only is it prohibited to fast, it becomes now mitzvah to have that double bacon and cheese on Yom Kippur because the Torah says it's, a, it's one of the 613 commandments, to live by the commandments. So therefore, if you, you can't say I'm from, you know, I'm super from and I'm not going to listen to the physician. If the doctor tells you you need to break your fast, you're obligated to break your fast. It now becomes a mitzvah to break your fast. Again, there's methods of doing it in a way to lessen the violation, you know, if it's not a dangerous situation. For example, my mom has diabetes, um, so she doesn't fast in Kippur, but what they, they do is you try to lessen the violation by eating small, very small portions, which technically mm-hmm. are not considered a violation, and you eat them, you space them over time, so there's less of a violation. Again, obviously in an emergency situation, if someone is ill, you don't do that. You don't play around with that. You, you do, you eat, you do whatever you have to do. Um, so this is true of Shabbat, it's true of Yom Kippur, it's true, any, again, any violation of the Torah. If the physician says this violation will endanger your life by performing it, then you need to, you need to violate the, the law. Okay, so, so the question is what was going on over here? So meaning, the, the problem here was that Rishalanta was allowing even the healthy people in Shabbat. Obviously if someone has cholera, there's no question, they can eat on Yom Kippur. No one would argue on that. The question is, here was people were very, there were people that were healthy. Because cholera only affected 10% of the population. So 80% of the population was totally fine. So the question is, so what, what was the debate here? So, so one the simple way of looking at it is, well, the question is, uh, Rabbi Salanter held even for what we call prophylactic um, situation, uh, even for a situation which is prophylactic, that means that you're going to prevent a situation of someone becoming ill. So let's say he understood, and the question is that he consult with physicians or not. Um, he said, it says in this paragraph, the physicians said it was dangerous to fast, so, but it's not clear, again, on the record. Um, like I said, I found five versions of the story. None of them claim that he consulted with a physician. Um, but it's even assuming he did, and the physician said it's dangerous for a healthy person, I mean, there's more, um, there's more percentage there's greater risk for someone if they do fast that they, their immune system will be lessened and therefore they might contact cholera in this case. Therefore, they shouldn't fast um, because they're increasing the risk, even though they're totally healthy. So Kipper, totally fine, they have no symptoms of cholera, they're, um, they're, 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 they never came in contact with someone with cholera. But the fact that their immune system by fasting can increase their risk of contacting, of contracting cholera, so that itself might be a reason to allow someone to break their fast. So that's called prophylactic. And again, the question becomes, 
where do you draw the line? Because, uh, you know, it could be endless in that situation. Everyone, in any situation, even if there's no disease around, but if you lower your immune system by fasting, technically, again, medically, if that might allow you to get some disease easier, so then you say, you know, many people shouldn't fast. So where do you draw the line? Usually, for pikuach nefesh, what we call saving a life, the, the, um, the line drawn, there's a famous uh, response written by the Nodi Behudu with the chief rabbi of Prague, he discusses, uh, it's actually relevant to autopsies, is, is what he's discussing, that's his context. And he said, in Judaism, as we know, we don't allow autopsies, except if it's to save a life. That means if a member of the family has the same illness, we need to know what's, what, uh, what the problem with this person is. Or other members of the family who have the same illness. Or, let's say it's for murder, we need to catch the murder, there's a murder on the loose. So then, of course, no autopsy is permitted. But if it's not about saving life, it's just because the medical examiner, you know, wants to perform an autopsy, that's not a reason to allow an autopsy. You know, because we need to know the cause of death, or the state wants to know the cause of death. Again, if there's suspicion of foul play, that's something else. So that's, we need to know if what someone is the, uh, philosophical purpose of performing autopsies is to further the advance right. of medical knowledge. Right. Yeah. So exactly. So that's you're not saving a specific you're saving a future life. Right. So, so that's so that's exactly a very good point. So that's exactly what the Nod Beauty says. He says in order for us to violate a law of the Torah for safe for for endangerment of life, it has to be a current and present danger. Oh, okay. That means so meaning let's say we're saying let's say there's another member of the family who has the same illness, we need to know what killed this you know, child or, or adult in order to, to help the other member of the family. I, but if I, it's just to help future, so for example. So that's a short, I believe, yeah. a short-sighted right. view yes. of... So, so because then why would we ever get better at being able to perform autopsies if we're only well, performing them in specific cases? Well, it's not the autopsy, it's the medical condition. So, right. for instance, as, right. as a big example, um, the NFL is looking at you know, the brains, head injuries, uh, mm-hmm. brain injuries. Head injuries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and so as NFL players are dying, they're looking at all the, the brains and brain injuries and, and trying to make sense of that right. for the future betterment of, of players. So again, first of all, you don't have to look at brain injuries, you don't have to only look at dead people, There's live people with brain injuries too. Right, but, but you're not looking at the brain then. Yes, you, yeah, are, okay, you would be looking at, li- yes, that's, it, that's even better. So you need a control group Right. Which so, mm-hmm. I'll tell, let me explain his opinion. Right. Football at the highest levels as a control group versus NFL players who have sustained numerous concussions. Right. So first of all, at the risk of sounding racist, the, the prohibition of the Torah is for Jews. So they want to you want to do autopsies and I just that's their issue. So good thing lots it's like six hundred thirty, right? Six hundred thirty. But then Jews would be the control group. <laughs> <laughs> you have right. Jewish right. owners. Right. Yeah. That's right. Jewish you know, owners. Jewish owners as the control <laughs> group and the players. Mm-hmm. So, the, but but actually, you know, by the way, that is one point. That is the age at which you know Jewish boys are told that their odds of becoming a basketball team owner are much greater than being a basketball team player. They haven't figured that out. Mark's been thinking that out in my little league for my son. Really? Thus marks one's one's entry into manhood. They're all like five foot. When you're told, cast your eyes on ownership. So it's a good point. First of all, I just want to clarify. Not everyone agrees. Some say prohibition to mutilate a body is all bodies because we're all created in the image of God. Others understand that specifically the, the obligation of burial in the Torah is one of the 613 is given to Jews. So there is a debate about that, but the assumption is um, autopsies, 
at least with those, what we as a community have to be concerned about is, is that the Jews are not, uh, meaning not performing the autopsy, it's who's being performed to well, accept. So, uh, so I understand your point. So let me explain. So his point, uh, Nodi Behuda says like this, you know, if you don't put a line, you have to draw a line somewhere. The reason is because otherwise it's endless. Because I know many Jewish researchers who work in MD Anderson trying to find the cure for cancer. Right, so they could say, listen, I need to go to work on Shabbos because uh, listen, I'm going to find that cure. It might be 10 years, it might be 15 years, but yeah. right, so it's endless. Meaning you, there has well, to be. Well, but I want you to stay on the specific, not to. Yes, yeah, so no, but I'm bringing that as an extreme. Like bring that as an extreme. Okay, so obviously you understand we're not going to say, well, you can work on Shabbos because you work in cancer research. You can go in on, sa- on uh, the next day and, and do your cancer research. There's right. no emergency yeah. That's right. today to yeah. do the cancer research. You're right. So now autopsies. If there's a clear and present danger, that means, let's say, let's say take Ebola, for example, that would be a good example, which seemingly, clearly, the CDC is clueless about it. <laughs> I think the whole world, no one really knows what, what they're doing um, uh, at this point. And we need to find a cure because thousands of people are dying. So that's called Bikoch Nef. You'd be allowed to work on Shabbos without question. Israel can, can send teams of people or research, whatever the case is. Without question, it can be done on Shabbos because we need to save lives. But well, the point is, if we're saying, listen, cancer research is something, you know, we're going to find the cure, we're working on it. In 10 years, we might find, even though there are people now who need the cure today, that, yeah, that doesn't you've work. you've gone from the specific of autopsies to the to yeah, well, that, much his more generalized. Is There's always another day. There aren't just other bodies. No, so there right, are. What I'm saying is, first of all, there are other bodies. But there are there are other bodies. There's always going to be people donating the bodies. If you don't draw a line, then we end up mutilating yeah, the bodies. No, or or the whole Torah will be irrelevant because right. you can always say, listen, we'll save it at some point. Right. Let's we can violate any law because down the line this will save lives. So there there is there has to be a point somewhere. There, there are always going to be people who are donating the bodies to science. Non-Jews. There's plenty of bodies out there. So can they the question have is, an autopsy? If they donate their body to science, uh, let, no, let, 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 let's be on the Jewish. You know, there are there are diseases. But that's the whole point. They've but chosen to donate point? their body to science and saying, yeah, I don't okay, have so something. But the question is, if I'm a Jewish researcher, can I mutilate their body? What if they have a disease that you don't even know about until you open them up? And now, because we've opened them up, but I'll go differently. There are diseases that are predominantly in Jews, so Tay Sachs and others, that because of Jewish inbreeding. So you, if you don't examine the Jewish population, right. including yeah, so long term, because Tysax isn't going to do anything to anybody, you know, this mm-hmm. afternoon. But if you don't examine right, the Jewish so population so long term, genetic research and the decoding of the genes is going to be much more important for all that, which is kind yeah, of crazy. Which is no, I'm it saying right. It used to be that we all thought exactly what you're saying. So, so, so technically, you're right. So so you're right. In a situation where there's no other option, and the only way we can figure out the cure for this disease is by mutilating bodies, so then of course it would be permitted. I, I'm not, I think it's theoretical, meaning there are cases you need to know, like we, that we clearly do make allowance. The question it's, is, it's if, the, the, if the medical field will say, no, I'm saying if the medical field would say that there's no way we can yes. study Tay-Sachs unless we cut open a Jewish body, so then we'd probably allow it. But I, what I'm saying is, I don't think that's the case, is what I'm saying. Like he's saying, there's genetic ways, there's ways to take tissue. Really and, also, t- for example, taking and removing small amounts of tissue is not called mutilating the body. We may, when I've seen autopsies live, not just on CIS, and uh, it's CSI. CSI. 
Um, it's pretty, I mean, they've really been lately. That's why I like open watching them. on CSI. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they cut the head open. I mean, it's pretty, they okay. literally. It's gruesome. Yeah, let's stick to the. Yeah, it's very gruesome. The, but anyways, but th theoretically, you're right. Meaning if there was a situation where research says the only way we can do it is by digging up these bodies and or whatever the case is, so then you would be allowed. Just like you can in the case of, of trying to catch a murder. So anyway, but that's that's a whole it's a different topic. Um, so now so again, so the question is so here or here too, the issue is these people are hundred percent healthy. You have a community where the people who have cholera are not the ones coming to Shulan and Kippur. So you have all these people in Shulan and Kippur and they're fine, they're healthy. Uh, they allowed to break their fast because they might be more susceptible to cholera if they fast on Yom Kippur. That was really that's one way of viewing viewing the argument. Um, and obviously, Rabbi Salanter held yes. Prophylactically, you can allow someone to break their fast just for that reason um, because they might be more susceptible. And um, this Rabbi Cohen, Bitzal Cohen, who was the head of the Bet in Avilna, obviously clearly disagreed, and that was their argument. Another way, a fascinating way of looking at the. Of, of the issue, um, which I saw another way, which might have been the, what the argument was about, was a fascinating concept in, in Jewish law, which is, the question is, and I've had this, I've experienced this myself as a rabbi, when you tell people, especially older people and Orthodox people who their whole life, they've never broken their fast, and Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year to them, and then you tell this 80-year-old person who never, never, you know, broke his fast in Yom Kippur, and now he's 80, and the doctor says he has to break his fast. Most of them are not going to listen to the doctor, unfortunately, which is stupid, yeah. and they're, they're wrong. Um, but that's the fact yeah. of life. They yeah. say, listen, I'm the rabbi. I've never broken my fast. I'm not starting now at 83, the first time to break my fast. So I don't know if you've ever met. I've met many people like that. Again, it's it comes out of ignorance, because according to the Torah, they have to break their fast, and it's also stupid. And if anything happens to them, they're held accountable. The Code of Jewish Law says... They're held accountable for their own life. They're, um, as a matter of fact, it says the rabbi's accountable for not educating them as congregants properly. If any of the congregants, it says, it says actually, about, even on Shabbat, it says if someone has a question about life, meaning it's should not, they go to the hospital? It's about time we got to rabbinical liability. <laughs> 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 that issue for years. If someone on Shabbat says goes has a question of whether they should go to the hospital, and they go and ask to their rabbi, ask their rabbi. And it says they're held, it says literally they have blood on their hands. You don't ask questions. If there's any, what's called safek sakana, that means any doubt to endangerment of life, you, you immediately violate Shabbat, you don't play around. You don't go asking your rabbi, you don't go ask questions. And unfortunately, many people don't know this law and they go and ask. And that's where it says the rabbi is accountable for not teaching them this law. So you don't, you don't play around with life. Um, so now, so the other way of looking at it is the other way of. Uh, because again, there's nothing documented about the argument. The other way of looking at it is like this: that the concern was that if they, if the rabbi says, "Okay, you people who are have who are weakened or or more susceptible to cholera, people the doctor says shouldn't fast, you're allowed to fast, but no one else is breaking their fast. You're allowed to break your fast." The concern was they wouldn't listen, and therefore <coughs> the rabbi held unless we show them, meaning that everyone is breaking their fast, even the healthy people. Which technically, they weren't allowed to, but. We want to save the people who are weaker, who might be more susceptible, by, by saying the whole community, this year there's no Yom Kippur. Cancel Yom Kippur. And some places they do it because of lack of interest. So <laughs> this year, in this place it was, um, right, they're, they're canceling it because in order to save the, the, the people who wouldn't listen, so we're going to say everyone, even the healthy people, should break their fast. Even though technically 
they, they shouldn't. They're not allowed to, as far as Allah is concerned. But Allah is going to say, we're going to make a leniency. Which I found, the only precedent I found to this law, fascinating, actually relevant to this year also. I don't know if you're aware, this year, Rosh Hashanah, we started what's called the Shemitah year, which is a sabbatical mm-hmm. year. It's funny, the, the Jews know less about it. I, the, it seems like uh, Lakewood Church, they spoke about it. <laughs> it's like been getting a lot of, a lot of places, people are meeting it to actually, there's a book published. It's called the... Actually, I have a picture of it in my phone. Shemitah something published by uh, some evangelical... evangelical. So Jews know less about it? <laughs> so this woman called me. There's also something with a red moon. You know about this? this yeah, blood moon? Blood moon. Yeah. Tell me, and it's on the 15th. It comes out on Sukkot. The okay. last one was on Pesach. All the uh, Christians are talking about it. Yeah, the Baptists, they're all talking about it. The Jews know nothing about it. They know all about it. The yeah. Jews don't, right? Yeah. Correct. So, so anyway... So this year is the Shemitah year, which means every seventh year on the Jewish calendar is sabbatical year. I'm trying to find cover that book. And, um, and the Shemitah year, one of the, there's two parts of the Shemitah year. One is you have to leave your land fallow. It means an agricultural society. There are some people who do that in Israel. Believe it or not, there are like five farmers, I think, who do leave their land fallow um, during the Shemitah year. Um, and the rest don't, and they're supposed to. Yeah, they're supposed That's to. what the Torah loophole, says. The loophole, there's a loophole. Yeah, there's a loophole. I know, I know there's a so loophole. So the loophole is what they, and I actually watched a video of this last week, the, the chief rabbi of Israel, and the government sells the whole country mm-hmm. to some, I thought it was an Arab, this past year it wasn't, some Swedish guy living in Israel, but they sold the whole country to, so it's technically not only here. Mm-hmm. This is the book, uh, last week, so it's put out by... Uh, History of the Shemitah. Shemitah. put up by some preacher, evangelical preacher. It holds the secret of America's future, the world's future, and your future <laughs> by Jonathan Kahn. Well, he's a Jewish prophet. No, he's evangelical, he said. Yes, yeah, I'm evangelical. I have, question, I have a question about that, though. For, for Maybe. Yeah. What about the, you know, if, if the land is sold to another guy... Yeah, we're not going to go off topic. We're okay, not get right. there. The point okay. is, because right. we're getting off topic, I'll speak to you about it afterwards. Yeah, so right, the right. point is, so in the Shemitah year, um, so this, so the question is obviously if you live in an agricultural society it's very tough and that's by where the loophole of selling it actually came up in the 1800s, the first Aliyah to Israel, all these farmers came, they were working the land there was also a disease, malaria and, and they, they couldn't, it was just too difficult so they wrote back to the rabbis in Europe what should we do? And basically they, they gave them this loophole which was to sell the land mm-hmm. to some, to Arabs and then then even though you, so the Arabs own it, so then there's no obligation. The obligation is only on Jewish owners. So, so but what happened in this case, there was a precedent, which is that they, it was too hard for the farmers in a certain year. They were all starving. So the rabbis understood if they tell the, even though, so they were allowed to violate Shemitah because they were literally starving. So of course, again, to save lives, you can work the land. But what happened was the rabbis said that everyone should violate Shemitah that year, all the other farmers even the ones who had money, in order to, because otherwise those that were starving wouldn't violate Shemitah. Yeah. So the question is, it's a fascinating thing. We're saying, these people are not listening to Allah. They really should break their fast in Kippur because they're not going to listen to the doctor and the rabbi. We're going to violate our fast for them. Yes. It's an unbelievable concept um, how much we care about life in Judaism and how concerned we are about life that we're going to allow the whole congregation, the whole community to violate their fast in order to, uh, that the other, the people who are sick should make sure to stay healthy. Just a fascinating guy. So that was that's mm-hmm. a nice story. Let's get down to Ebola, which is more important. <laughs> it's coming to a city near you. So so uh, so there's a few questions that I put down here again. Like I said, I'm not. I don't know if I have all the answers yet, but we'll try. So if question number one, read through all the scenarios, and these are very relevant, and hopefully they won't be more relevant in the future. But 
but uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So let's see. So the question number one is, to what extent should one risk contracting the disease in order to treat others? So this is a big question, obviously, for physicians or nurses and plenty of people. As you know, many of the people who got sick um, to begin with, the foreigners, for sure, are, are doctors or nurses who had gone there to volunteer um, to treat people. So, so now what happens, as we know, in general, there's an obligation to treat people in the Torah. But am I obligated to risk my life to, to help someone else, to save someone else's life? That's question number one. B, is there a difference between healthcare providers and others? So maybe a doctor, you know, listen, I opted for this job. You know, I went through, my parents put me through eight years of medical school, whatever it is, and I paid a lot of money, so I'm stuck. You know, I got to do my job. But what about I'm a, others who are just volunteers who are going to help the people? So is there a difference between a healthcare provider and that? Um, C, is it ethical to force someone into quarantine? The question is, someone has the disease now, or may, might have the disease, are we allowed to, as a government, as a society, to put them into quarantine, taking away their rights, basically, their autonomy, especially in this great land of ours, where it's a free country? So can I force someone into quarantine? Okay, again, I'm, I'm discussing from the halakhic viewpoint, not the legal viewpoint. Um, D, is it ethical for a government or other organization to force inoculation on the people in order to prevent the spread of the disease? So I don't know, I don't think they have an inoculation yet ebola they're working on it supposedly um but assuming they do can we force people to be inaccurate it's a general question especially in texas it's come up recently the last few years a lot which is which is um question of in general vaccinations many parents who do not want to get their kids vaccinated um because the first of all they claim it has to do it causes autism, autism right so i don't know if the studies say they do there's yeah. in any case there 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 is there might be side effects from various vaccinations that could have side effects which Side could effects, be a problem. Yeah, not, not autism. autism. Yes, right. I'll, I'll tell effects. you. I have By the way, I got two inoculations last week. My my upper arm is sore. No, there was. There are always I have some right. side effects. Right. They're slight. You know, I ran a fever of 99.2. No, but I'm talking about serious side effects. Here, I don't know. If, um, let's read this. I don't know if this information is correct. It says. <laughs> let me read it. I don't know I'm not. I want you to read this. No, no, it's not Mr. Michigas. This is says like this. In 1976, a soldier died from swine. U.S. government was concerned about a potential pandemic and started a mass campaign so to inoculate. So listen, hold on, hold on, listen, hold on, hold on. To inoculate the entire population, because there was no time to test the safety of the vaccine, it's quickly discovered that the vaccine increased the risk for Jillian Barr syndrome. Twenty-five okay. people, I believe, to have okay, so died. An untested One vaccine second. was used. Right in 1976. <laughs> yes, there I'm was just an That doesn't have anything to do with inoculations. 100 percent. 100 percent. I'm agreeing. I'm just you know, telling the story. Because there was no time to test the safety, it was quickly discovered the vaccine mm -hmm. increased the risk for Jillian 
bar, is that the way, is that the yeah. correct pronunciation? Gillian bar. Gillian bar syndrome. 25 people are believed to have died from the vaccine, while the only person who died from the swine flu was the original soldier. After the debacle of 1976, you could expect that there would be resistance to another attempt at inoculating the population. That's all he's saying. He's just saying, there are, there again, I don't know. I didn't right, research it, I don't know. Yeah, well, to an yeah. untested vaccine. Yes. It's like yes. Like question giving out meth. People are gonna be like, "Hold on, was this test?" I mean. Hundred percent. I. I <coughs> yeah, Rabbi, you don't have much of a dilemma since there's effectively we're all gonna die if this keeps this. Actually, they say Israel is the. I'm gonna die. I heard a guy on the radio say that Ebola, that the only med or potential drug is in Israel. It's in Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, read I that thought last they cured the doctors. No, who had I don't. It. I don't know about no. cure, but I think he. The case had to do with the timing and what they were able to do for him. And I think that's a lot right. of it. Right. I thought it was Israel. the treatment yeah. and the facility of treatment. Right, well, that's why, by the way, this guy who's in Dallas, they okay. say the reason why he left is because he knew he could get treated in America. They say that he was right. aware. He he this, there. Over there, he's for sure going to die. Here, right. there's a chance he might live. That's what I would do. Like, what am I doing over here? Okay, so, so, so the question is, is it ethical for government to force inoculation on the people? Um, e, does one have an obligation to inform the authorities or the places the infected person is frequenting? So let's say I know I have a friend who has this disease. Um, am I obligated or to, to let the authorities know? F, is it ethical for a school or synagogue to ban those who are not inoculated from attending classes or services when when those who refuse inoculation do so on grounds that they are concerned about the side effects, okay? Just press the button, it shuts up. Dave, hey, come I on am. already. <laughs> it's your Stop it. Well, okay, that's fine. Talk to okay, so, so, um, so, so again, so the question is, is it ethical for school? This is really very relevant as we're talking about inoculation. Schools that should they not allow kids in unless they're inoculated? So obviously I would answer yes to that, but um, the question is if everyone's inoculated and there's only one kid who's not, so then again it becomes, you know, it's really not an issue. So that's another uh, question. Um, G, what does one do if there are limited supplies of medications or healthcare providers to treat them? Okay, so let's, let's start from the top. Let's mm -hmm. take it from the top. So as far as the first question, to what extent should one risk contracting the disease in order to treat others? So this is a question really for healthcare, more for yeah. people involved. Or, right. um, um, but even as a rabbi, you get this. Uh, you know, you're visiting someone who has an infectious disease. Should I go visit in the hospital? Chancing that, uh, that there's, I'm putting myself at risk to a certain extent. Obviously more relevant to healthcare providers. Um, so, so in general, just to start from the beginning, there is Jewish law, and we discussed this here in other contexts in the past, requires one to save a life, meaning before we get to the issue of risk. In general, in a Western society, there, you have no obligation to save someone's life unless you're a healthcare provider and they're your patient and you're contracting. Or they walk into the emergency room, then you're obligated. Otherwise, like we said many times, if you're driving down the street and someone, uh, you see a car accident, someone falls into the bayou, someone falls in the swimming pool, you have no obligation. Someone's choking in a restaurant and they say, does anyone know the Heimlich? You can just continue eating your dinner and you've done nothing wrong um, legally. You, uh, Maybe an idiot, but I'm saying legally you've done nothing wrong. In, in Jewish law, you violated a, a negative prohibition. Torah says very clearly, Lo do not stand idly by while your brother's blood is being shed. Mm -hmm. That means if you have the ability to save someone's life, you know the Heimlich, and you decide to continue eating your dinner while the guy's choking at the next table, so you violated, your, it's a negative prohibition. 
Okay, you have an obligation to save someone's life. You know how to swim, and someone is drowning in the pool, you've got to jump in and save them. Now the question is, what happens if you don't know how to swim? Um, should you jump in and try to save them? So that's really the question here. So you risk, am I obligated to risk my own life? And this is very relevant to literally a lot of applications. First and foremost would probably be organ donation, live organ donation. Am I obligated to give up my kidney to save someone's life? Saying the Torah says, you have to say you're obligated to save someone's life. Does that mean that uh, you know someone needs a kidney? I have to be a match for them. So am I obligated to give up my kidney? You're saying no. Why not? Why not? The Torah says you can you you shouldn't stand idly by. I have the ability to save someone's life by giving them my kidney. So why shouldn't I do it? You're putting yourself in danger. Oh, okay. So that's so that's the question. So am I obligated to risk my life mm -hmm. to help someone else? So so almost all opinions say you're not. I mean, just like any other mitzvah in the Torah. Just like we said before, the Torah says, V'chaybeb, you have to live by the commandments. So this commandment is no different. Do not stand hourly by while, while your brother's blood is being shed. But I, I don't have to risk my life. Again, if I'm endangering my life by fulfilling that mitzvah, it's just like breaking your fast on Yom Kippur. You're obligated to break your fast if it's going to endanger your life. So the same thing here. Te technically speaking, according to most majority opinions, 99% opinions say the same thing. You're not obligated to risk your life. You, the question is, are you allowed to? So that, they say, normally you're not allowed to. It means, like we said before, the physician says break your fast in Yom Kippur, you, it's a mitzvah. You have to eat the bacon, ham, and cheese. That's what the doctor says you need. Okay? If, now, and you're not allowed to say, well, I want to be more religious. You know, I'm a rabbi. I'm, I'm going to show my congregants I'm going to be more firm, and I'm not going to listen to the doctor. That's prohibited. When it comes to saving someone's other, someone else's life, <coughs> over there, there's a leniency where we say you're allowed to take the risk in certain instances. That means, for example, donating a kidney. You don't say you're not allowed to donate a kidney. It's a beautiful thing. If you want to donate it, that's up to you, but it's your prerogative. But you're not obligated to donate. Okay, so, but you're allowed to take the risk. And by the way, a kidney donation is a minimal, minimal risk because it's only, the risk is really only if, God forbid, you, your other kidney stops functioning. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a risk in obviously in surgery, minimal risk, but, but that's really probably minimal. The, the real risk is only if, God forbid, some future point in your life, you, you, your other kidney stops functioning, that's where it would be a risk. So there's not a great risk there, but no one says you're obligated to do it, again, because of the risk involved. So anytime there's a risk to your life, I have no obligation. So surely, um, where <coughs> you're dealing with infectious disease, let's say, for sure, as a rabbi, visiting someone in the hospital, if it's a serious infectious disease where there's a good chance, again, if, if you, the only way you can catch it is by having uh, intimate relations with the person, and you can visit the person, the rabbi can go visit the person, um, right? So, but, but we're saying if there's a, there's a chance of contracting the disease just by visiting the person in the hospital, then you shouldn't go visit that person. Or we visit him behind the glass glass wall, whatever the but case. Then is it, but it's not really forbidden, is what you're saying, correct? So, no, so well, well, makes like the said, decision. well, visiting someone is not going to save their life in most cases. The, I'm talking about if you can save someone's life, let's say mouth to mouth. Someone might have an infectious disease and and they collapse on the floor. By the way, I, when I've discussed this topic in in the medical center with physicians, I have a, a friend who's a physician who told me that he and when he was in medical school, there was a friend of his who. Literally, someone collapsed in the hospital, in a VA hospital, not in Houston, this was in Boston, and uh, the guy gave mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, a physician, and this guy had TB, and he ended up contracting TB, this guy, You're no longer physician, supposed to give mouth-to-mouth -mouth when you get CPR. This was it's 50, 40 years ago, yeah. whatever. 
now that you're not supposed to breathe at all. It's, it's breathe. solely chest compressions. Okay, that could be, I don't know. But the point, anyway, the point is this guy died from saving, literally saving someone. He got, or I don't know if he died, he contracted TB, I'm assuming he died, um, from saving someone else's life. So, so you need to be careful. Um, what we're saying is, when it comes to saving someone else's life, you can place yourself at risk. If it's, if it's for sure, meaning if there's a good chance you're, meaning you're going to get killed, and it says what's, uh, the advice says what's called echira, chasid shoter, that means you're a pious fool. Uh, okay. Someone who, who literally gives up their life. Okay. So as we always we discussed this here in the past, like taking the bullet for the president is not a Jewish thing. You're an idiot. <laughs> you're a pious fool. Okay, so working for the Secret Service, that's why there's no yeah. short Jewish guys in the Secret Service. Um, so, so you know, it's taking any president. Is there, not no, just this is president. there no exception to that as a higher cause? Like no, so there is war, war time. Yeah, war time. Obviously, that's different. Can uh, we discuss this? I think in the ethics so, of war. So, in Israel, there's no difference. They have secret service. Yeah. So, if you say, if you want to say secret, you know, protect the president is always considered an act of war. <coughs> you know, maybe that's yes. Not what you do. Yeah, but I'm saying, but taking the bullet or just being a hero. I'm saying is these guys who you know we honor for being a hero. You know, they took. Not only for president, I'm saying a guy uh, jumped in and saved someone and he got killed in the act, so that in Judaism we view him as a pious fool, not a, not a hero. <laughs> okay, we don't give him a medal of honor. Okay. Um, good to know that. But yeah. if it's your job, it's okay. No, I didn't say that. I said, I well, said, if you're in the Secret Service, Oh, so I said job. Secret Service might be different in the sense of you, well, it might be a good point, but Secret Service might be different because it's an act of war. If the president gets shot, that always might, you know, cause chaos in society. So firemen, right? So, so that's a good question. Said there's plenty of firemen and police, but it is all the time. So, so yeah. So there is, by the way, if we discussed this here, I believe, in many moons ago, that for parnasa, meaning for to make a living, you can risk a certain amount of risk is allowed because it's understood. It's actually based on a verse in the Torah, meaning. Many jobs are risky. Do well, that goes right back to the doctors and the nurses. Yes, too, yes. So, so one of the things that I did see discussed was that when a healthcare if you worker... Need, if you need the job, meaning like I have a friend who's yeah. a volunteer farmer who works for the IRS, he just likes that more than working for the IRS. He's a nice right. boy, but I think he's crazy because he can die in a fire in right, so suburban Minneapolis, you know? That's so that really, point. theoretically, yeah, could be, so, so there could is be, a hat to be right. the pious fool to do Right, so one hat to the, the one like of the leniences is, is for yeah. Yeah. make money, like yeah, you're saying. If you don't need the money, he's doing it just for fun. He's that's well, a problem. That's different. Pay them too, though. Right, my point is, he has a full-time job, but still, that would probably qualify as your category. So the point is, so they do discuss that if someone signed up, meaning I actually saw two various opinions about this, meaning technically, just, to, just because I happen to go to medical school and have more medical knowledge doesn't make me more obligated to save someone's life. In the sense of, because of my knowledge, now I can save, I have the ability to save more people's lives. So in those situations, meaning you don't know how to do surgery, not that I do, but, but I'm saying the surgeon, right, someone's a thoracic surgeon, he can do the surgery. So the fact that uh, he went to medical school, just there's more scenarios that he's going to be obligated, but it doesn't mean he has more of an obligation to risk his life. That's one opinion that I saw. Although I did see another opinion that says, listen, you signed up for this job knowing if you became an infectious disease specialist, That's right. so you know this is your job is going to include um, meeting people with infectious disease. So you can't now say, well, no, I'm not going to do right, the job. Exactly. So there is a concept um, of doing, you signed up for the job, that's your problem now. So now you're obligated to do your job. So, so what Dave said is true to a certain extent. And once you signed up for the job, so that might apply to the Secret Service also. Again, you're an idiot. 
signing up for the job. <laughs> but but once you've you've obligated yourself to do that job, so so it could be. Just, um, just wondering how you're going to file this in the suit code. <laughs> oh, well, no, it is. Right. I'll tell you what. I just, uh, as you said, the, if you know that uh, that disease that the, the mosquitoes carry, West Nile. West Nile. Well, so yeah. there is, by the way, you know, assuming West Nile virus would be rampant in Houston, meaning let's say we know mm -hmm. those mosquitoes are carrying, and I would tell people, and I've this oh, happened the best, don't eat your sucker. Shouldn't eat your sucker. You can't risk your life to to, to eat your sucker. <laughs> so. Now, if you can't handle 110 degree weather, and you, <laughs> then you shouldn't eat it. So, right. you know, um, but, but the point is, so, so West Nile would be an example of this. It is a good, so it is tied to sukkah. In the sense of if there's a danger to eating the sukkah, no question. should not be eating the sukkah. Um, so if there's a chance, even, again, by the way, we violate Shabbat even on a, what's called safek sakana. It means even a, a, a doubtful endangerment. There's, if there's a, I would say, 10% or 15% chance of endangerment, then you, you violate Shabbat. Really? So same thing with Sukkot for sure. So there's a, I don't know what the chances of West Nile are now when you still think they're low, but assuming there's an over a 10% chance, mosquitoes are... But I feel uh, like you're making up that 10%. I well, feel like you did well, that randomly. I, I, well, I did. I'll tell you, okay. but I'll explain. Meaning, because meaning again, it goes back to what I was saying before, where do you draw the line? Driving on the right. 610 is, is dangerous, yeah. especially right. in Houston. <laughs> okay, right, so so where do you draw the line? Everything, there's a risk to everything in life. Mm -hmm. Eating barbecue is dangerous. How likely so, is it that so, I'm going to get West Nile? So again, so I don't know I don't know the numbers, but the point is once it's non-negligible, what we call non-negligible numbers, so meaning if there's a 3% chance, that's, neg that's what we call negligible. Um, so once it's a certain above a per certain percentage where it's no longer considered negligible medically, so that's really the that's where the halacha is based on the facts of medicine. Because the rabbi can't rule unless he knows the medicine, understands the medicine, and knows the medical facts. So I don't know what the numbers are, but assuming whatever the medical field would be considered would be considered uh, non-negligible numbers, that's where halacha would come in and say don't don't take a chance. Okay, so. Um, now getting back, so there is, by the way, one opinion, uh, interestingly enough, there is, there's, in the Talmud Yerushalmi, brings a story, which I'll read, you can find it here, in the Talmud Yerushalmi, there's a story there, there's a Jerusalem Talmud, says that there was um, a case of a group of bandits kidnapped this guy, and all the other rabbis said, okay, you know, sort of like ISIS, prepare the burial shrouds, this guy's a goner, there's nothing we can do, just forget about it. And Rish Lakish, one rabbi said, um, that uh, he's going, he's going in. Okay, he says they want to. He says if they want um, his language is if they want Rabimi, who's the one kidnapped, they're going to have to kill me first. So he was going to save this this other rabbi. Um, so and the one of the codifiers on the, on Maimonides says this is a proof that even to, to save someone's life, you have to risk your own life. Clearly, it would be a risk for Reish Lakish to go and try to save this guy, this kidnapped um, hostage. But he says you, he rules from here. You see, you have to you have to risk your life, even to save someone else's life. Which again, like I said, no one else agrees with. It's not brought in the Shofan Aruch itself. Does not codify it. So most say you don't have to. There was, by the way, a case of cholera that I found, and this is in in uh, I don't know what year it was, but it was Rebbeim Salvechik who lived who died in 1918, born in 1853. So somewhere between 1853 and 1918, where he ruled um, according to this opinion. And uh, he said that uh, he ruled that those are healthy. Healthy people have to go help the people with cholera at the time um, if they're able to administer them, you know, whatever they need, food, etc. 
even though there was a clear risk to their own lives. And he based his, his opinion on this ruling of this opinion of the Jerusalem Talmud, where you should risk your life to save someone else's life. So again, it's, it's questionable. Oh, okay. Okay, so we're almost out of time, but some other, just to get to issue of forced quarantine, because this is very relevant mm-hmm. in Dallas today, where they're actually even, they're, they say over 100 people, originally they said 100 people came in contact with this person, now they knocked it down to 50, because it's only, they, they interviewed 100 people, um, they found all 100 people who came in contact with this guy, was his name Warren something, um, and uh, they now, so really again, Ebola can only be contracted if you were intimate or something more serious, so now it's down to 50, um, clearly his girlfriend is, so they're quarantining the people who they think had very close contact with him, um, more intimate contact, I'm not sure what that means, because they didn't describe it, how intimate is intimate. Maybe okay. it's bodily fluid thing. Right, I don't so like saying, so it's his kids, his girlfriend, I don't know exactly. Um, but actually, one of the reasons, they've, I don't know if you saw this on Friday, um, they, they actually have police outside his house because one of the people tried leaving. They actually tried to get out. So they, they put police presence not to not allow people in. But, so the question is again, so according to halacha, there's no question. Um, if, if someone does have a communicable disease, you would be allowed to quarantine them to save the life of other people. Again, because there's no question, you, you have a right to take away someone else's rights, even though normally people have autonomy, and if they want to walk around, um, but you do have a right to quarantine someone. Again, if there's a serious chance that this person can affect other people. Um, as, as far as, by the way, even it's interesting, when the halacha is really, do they have, what's the real question is, and this is a very important question, of how do you define them? Because we discussed many times what the concept of rodef, it means if someone is pursuing someone else to kill them, you have a right to kill that person. Okay? Um, it means you see someone chasing someone down the street with a gun, you can shoot that person. So the question is, if someone has a communicable disease, and let's say you know that they're going around and, and not telling people about it, they're sleeping around. Mm-hmm. There were many cases like this, people with HIV, who were, yeah. it's Russian roulette, they're going in. Yeah. Sometimes there was a case I read about where they actually, specifically, they want to take down they're going to die, they want to take as many people with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was a case of a woman, I read about, um, so the question is, do they, does that person have a, have a halacha, do we classify them as a pursuer, or you, you might even, you can clearly lock them up and not allow them to, to go around doing this. Okay, by the way, in the halacha is as a, not to do with a rabbi or a doctor, you're obligated to let the authorities know. That means, if you know this person has HIV, or Ebola, or whatever it may be, um, a communicable disease, and there you have an obligation to tell their people that they have relationships with because this person is clearly endangering their lives. If they're not aware of it, so you obligate to tell them, even if it risks, meaning, meaning, let's say a doctor, a doctor, by the way, and legally also, this is true in the state of Texas, if you're a physician, you know someone has HIV, mm-hmm. you might be obligated to break confidentiality and let the person, let's say their girlfriend know or their potential spouse, spouse or someone who has a relationship with them. Um, you're obligated, maybe. That's actually not the case anymore. No? Mm-hmm. Sure about As a therapist, you are no longer, you can be sued for breaking confidentiality. Even you, for communicable mm-hmm. disease? You are allowed. You don't have to report to the third? No, to you CDC? are allowed to call and make a report, but you are not obligated. So I'm not sure that's true. In, in the medical field, someone has a communicable disease, and it's something that the authorities have to be aware of. They have to be, might be obligated to, to report it. Yeah, it has to be reported yeah. to the state for sure. And I don't know, maybe with HIV, I don't the know. CDC. A, a quick question on the yes. Yeah. Does this, this is really, it's happened before. If we have 100 people 
and I got enough medicine for five or six, who gets that medicine? Right, so normally the way it's a first come, first serve, in halacha, it's first come, first serve basis. Um, the same charge as charity rabbis and then <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, one medicine for all of us. So may the best man win. Is that what it is? That's really no, no, no. First, no, that's first come, first serve. No, it's first come, first serve. There is a discussion, by the way, let's say, can I grab it away from you? Listen, you know, I have to save my life. I have an obligation to save my life. You have an obligation to save you. You, have. you have the vial. Can I steal it from you? That's a whole different question. It's, not gonna it's not oh. by it's not by age. It's not by no. This needs to be a two-hour class. Yeah, this is, it's a lot more. <laughs> we like get said, a lot I'm of questions research. here. <laughs> so maybe we'll continue this at the next <laughs> class. Yeah. We'll see where Ebola is at the time. Hopefully, it won't be relevant anymore. Yeah, exactly. You talk about that. Yeah, Please. so there's a case. That's the classical case. So the question is, can I beat you up steal your water? Share. Yeah, well, even if so you, can you, say, you don't assault, have to share. Can you, can can you I assault grab it away someone? Can you assault someone yeah. for it? Well, there's a, there's a famous case, which is called the, in general, can you steal to, to save a life? Meaning, the famous case was the, the Heinz dilemma, where this guy's wife was dying. That's a theoretical case, but in England, supposedly took place. There was a guy whose wife was dying of cancer. He couldn't afford the medicine. And he broke into a pharmacy to steal the medicine, to save his wife's life. So is that, is he allowed to do that? Is he not? So logically, most opinions say he is. He is. Yeah, I mean, if you're interested. You so that's that's uh, a. Mm. Actually, I saw just end off. I saw a cute response. I was looking for a response about about this. There's nothing on Ebola yet. So I was looking at swine flu response. So it's the only thing out there. There was a case of, of uh, I think it was with swine flu. A guy was on a bus in Israel. If you ever travel an Agate bus in Israel, so they the buses, the public buses there, even on long like on intercity buses. They'll fill up the bus and then you can, people just stand in the aisle. It's like three hour trips. People sit on the floor, so they're not into the safety thing over there. <laughs> so the guy, this is a real case, a guy got on the bus after like a two hour hike with his kids, his five kids, and there was no seats left. So he's, his kids are still complaining, they're sitting in the aisle. So he gets on the phone. This is a real case that came to Rabbit. He picks up his cell phone, and as the bus starts going, and, he's, and he calls his wife and he tells his wife, you know, I'm just coming back from the doctor today. Doctor said there was the test was positive. I have swine flu. <laughs> he said he's loud on the bus. So at the next stop, yeah, you know, like half the bus just passed. Uh -huh. So then he. That really happened. This is a true case. It came. This question was question the rabbi. So he felt guilty. Yes. So he had seats for his kids. <laughs> yeah, obviously he felt guilty afterwards. So he came to the rabbi. His question was, does he have to pay for those people's tickets? Like caused them a loss, monetary loss. So the question is, is he obligated to pay for the... And what, the rabbi and what, what was the answer yeah, to that, Rabbi? more likely <laughs> what was the uh, outcome of that would have been that he and his children were probably escorted right, to the bus right. as opposed to yeah, people getting off yeah. for him. But yeah, but they didn't know that. I'm saying they... That's what would be a natural response, They thought though. it was a... Right, they're natural response. So yeah, people just, I'm getting away from Loudly, this guy. Yeah, well, I'm getting I'm off at the next stop. But I'm saying in Israel, I think they would have decided... They would have decided... Pushed out they, the they would have pushed him off. Get off. They knew he was lying, yeah. So what did the rabbi so say? The rabbi said that legally, he doesn't have to pay. Because, uh, because it was called a grama. Listen, what's called a... He just caused the loss, but he didn't actually steal from them. He didn't do it. He said morally, he does have to pay for the tickets. I mean, what's called a... Ethically, morally, he shouldn't have to pay. The problem is, obviously, he can't find those people. So he said he has to give charity in the amount of all those of tickets to public, uh -huh. something public where people, public can benefit from. No, but, uh, but clearly, he was wrong to do that.
MP3 project from the Jewish Ethic Institute. For a complete selection of our lectures, please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom. Shalom.